Well, good morning. Uh, thankful for the opportunity to be here again after a few years. Uh, Dana and, and Chris, too, have just been real important friends for me over the years. And uh, so it's a privilege to be here and, uh, uh, yeah, just be able to serve you. And, uh, uh, yeah, really, really thankful for that. Um, but when Dana invited me to come out here, you know, I heard there was going to be soup. And so uh, I was like, well, okay, sounds great. Sounds great. And then they, I got out here and they pulled the, the switcheroo on me. And uh, so here I am. You know, here I am. Um, uh, like Dana mentioned earlier, I serve on the leadership team of a, a small mission agency called International Messengers. And we've got missionaries all over the world, about 28 countries. And uh, it's just a privilege to be able to serve with them and support them in all these ways. That's really what my job is, to be sort of a pastor to those, to those uh, people in our missionary family. Um, this message might not at first seem quite like a missions sermon. And uh, I guess my idea is that... Uh, a missions sermon, or missions in general, requires us to uh, embrace the good news. And I really hope this morning to give you a fresh encouragement about how good the good news really is, and then the missions part will come pretty naturally from there, if we can grab a hold of that uh, a little more. Um, you remember that, uh, that old game, uh, Pictionary? Uh, you're familiar with that? I'd like to have you do something a little bit uh, different this morning. You got a little bit of white space on here. I'd like you to take that out and dig around for a pen or something. And I want to have you draw three things on here, uh, kind of Pictionary style. And I know if you're an artist, it's hard to just do the stick figures, but, uh, but just real quick, real quick, uh, three things, and, and let me explain. I want you to draw um, a picture of yourself, that, like the stick person you, okay? No portraits or anything, just a quick uh, uh, stick person you. And then second, I'd like you to draw God, and this isn't some sort of contest like or trick question, like nobody can really draw God. It just, you know, write his name or a triangle or whatever, okay? I, it, you can do that, all right? Um, and then I want you to draw an ocean, okay? And uh, don't start yet. If you've already started, then I've messed it up. Um, just, yeah, an ocean. And I want you to draw those three things, you and God and an ocean, and that ocean represents your sin, your sin ocean. And I say ocean rather than pond because it's a lot. Um, just let's start with that, that acknowledgement right here, okay? It's big. And so I want you to draw those three things in relation to each other the way you think of them. Okay, so, so is it God's up here and uh, you're drowning in the ocean? Is it the ocean, you know, God, ocean, me? Is it, you know, what, whatever, you know, think of those three things in relation to each other and do a little sketch and, uh, uh, yeah, if, 
Yeah, if it gets boring, you can go back and work on your picture uh, during the middle here, okay? I'll, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, what I want to talk about here, I think I can summarize in a couple words, relationship and isolation. Relationship and isolation. Um, Satan's plan to isolate and God's plan to redeem a fallen and isolated creation. In, uh, in the missions world, we, you know, it's pretty common for people to think of missionaries as those real top-shelf Christians, you know? There's the, the real good Christians or, you know, mostly good Christians like, like pastors, you know, uh, Pastor Dana, for example, um, you know. But then there's the, the real tops, those are the missionaries. And the ones that serve where there's like snakes and spiders, they're like way up there, right? Um, <clears throat> but missions can be kind of a perfect storm of uh, isolation. Okay, so you get to a culture that's not your own and a language that isn't your own, and no matter how good you get at that language, it's never your heart language. And uh, um, no matter how long you stay there, you're never one of us. And uh, it creates a lot of, uh, it's hard to establish good relations or relationships that are real feeding in that type of context. And then a lot of times, of course, the missionaries are in places where it's hard to have, you know, real good, rich relationships. If that was all there already, they might have gone somewhere else. Um, especially you get into some, some Hindu cultures or Muslim cultures or places where religiously you're the bad guy. And then you mix in COVID, and we all kind of have some sense of how the isolating effect of that. And like I said, kind of a perfect storm. And the ones that survive... And I don't mean just that, that get through for a couple years. The ones that really make the long journey in missions are the ones that have a relationship with the Lord that's enough. Um, a depth in their relationship with Him that carries them through those waves of circumstance. And so they're not just looking to the people around them to meet all those relationship needs. Of course, God's made us that way, to need each other. But uh, they have relationships with the Lord and, and people that keeps them going. Um, I want to start with Hebrews 12.2. Hebrews 12.2. And I'm taking this from the New Living Translation. <clears throat> It says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And right in the middle of that verse, I want to read this one sentence again. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. The joy awaiting him. What was the joy that Jesus was looking ahead to when he went to the cross? 
The next part of the verse, the next sentence, talks about Jesus taking his rightful place at the Father's right hand. But I don't think you can understand the joy that he was looking toward just in terms of that one sentence that comes after. You know, certainly that Jesus taking his place on the throne is part of the whole world being set right again. It's part of the order of things where sin is demolished and things are right because he's the ruler. But let's not have the idea that Jesus' future joy is someday I'm going to get to sit on that throne with gold and marble and all eternity I'll just be thinking deep thoughts. Um, that's not it. The joy that Jesus is looking ahead to as he suffers there is about you. It's about me. In Ephesians 1 we learn that before the world began, uh, he was looking forward to relationship with us. And it says it gave him great pleasure. And that seems strange to me because I know who I am with all my mess and uh, uh, that God before, you know, with creating the world seems like a big thing to have on your plate. And before he did all that, He's imagining someday, someday, you know, in the 2000s, Brent and I are going to go through this time where he's going to turn to me with a trust that is really special. That'll be great. You know, it just, you read that passage there and, and it, just, it just changes everything to think about God looking forward with that kind of love and anticipation to relationship with you. And uh, I think that's what Hebrews 12, 2 is talking about. He went to the cross to cover our sin and soak up our shame and redeem the world so that things could be set right as they were intended. Heaven is where Jesus gets all the joy because he gets to be united with us. I want to... Um, I want to share a couple of verses or a couple of phrases from the last couple chapters of Revelation and see if you can hear this joy of relationship. I'm just going to whip off a few of the phrases from those last couple chapters. Um, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This says a little later, look, I'm making everything new. Now, I, I don't have to explain to you what everything it means, but I think when you hear that, uh, it's sin will be gone. And so imagine life without that influence everybody there will be trustworthy. There's no holding back or trying to judge. How much do I say? Can I be transparent? It's just all open and safe and good. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. They'll see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there'll be no night there. 
So all that's meant to show that the joy Jesus is anticipating has a lot to do with relationship. Yeah, and that's why he went to the cross. He scorned it, one translation says. Uh, what I was reading from, it said he disregarded the shame of the cross. Uh, I think the idea is like, all the shame of having that sin on him and the public humiliation of it, he took it off and threw it down and stomped all over it. No more. No more do we have to live under that when we're redeemed by him. Okay, I want to give you a little bit of a Bible trivia thing here. Um, what's different between Eden? We're going to read uh, uh, about the Garden of Eden here in a minute in Genesis chapter 3. So... Hence, hence the trivia question. What's different between life in the Garden of Eden and life in heaven? Okay? Eden and heaven. What's in, so I'm going to come back to that. You just, if, if, again, if the stick figure thing isn't occupying you, you can work on that. All right? Uh, let's talk about shame for a minute before I, before I read from, uh, from Genesis here. Um, he... Uh, uh, rejected or despised the shame. Shame's different from sin. Sin is the wrong that I do. Shame's the identity I take on as a result of my sin. It's also a result of believing what Satan says about me instead of believing what God says about me and trusting what God says about me. Uh, same, same. Shame cripples us with a false story about who we really are. So, an example. When I was a boy, uh, they used to mail out the report cards, okay? And uh, so, let's just talk hypothetically. A, a, you know, say there was a young boy who grew up in Iowa. Um, he uh, uh, had no way to get home. He knew when report cards got sent out but he didn't really have a way to get home before mom went to the mailbox. And so, uh, in spite of lots of scheming and strategizing and creative uh, endeavors, there just wasn't a way to intercept the report card and, uh, you know, use some similar colored ink on it or anything. Um, when a child's report card has a bunch of bad marks on it, bad grades. The report card has a bunch of Fs on it, which stands for failure, by the way. A, B, C, D, you know, those don't stand for something, but F sure does. And when a child's report card has a bunch of Fs on it, what does it mean? Well, it maybe means that there's some learning issues there or, or something like that. Maybe it means he uh, doesn't pay attention. Or maybe it means that, uh, um, yeah, that he just doesn't work hard enough. But what that's really meant to mean, those, those grades on the card, is very simple. Here's how much uh, was supposed to be accomplished, and he accomplished this much of it. Or here's how much he was supposed to learn, you could say. And according to our tests, here's how much he did learn. And that's what a grade is supposed to tell. But what happens when a father says to a child like that, you are so stupid. 
You know, you can't do anything right. You'll always be a failure. I can't believe this. When a father brings that to bear on a situation like this, that's when shame is created. Um, all of a sudden, the grade means something more than what you did or didn't achieve, right? All of a sudden, the grade says something about who I am. It says failure. It says not good enough. Never good enough. Stupid. Often we carry those shame messages everywhere we go. And even as an adult, that child, when he loses a job, he gets fired, or he has some financial problems, uh, one of his relationships is broken, there's some hurts, you know what comes up in his mind right away, don't you? You're such a failure. You're so stupid. You can't do anything. That identity that Satan preaches as a result of sin, Satan preaches this, and not that failing a course is necessarily a sin, but you know what I mean. This uh, uh, message, he says, is his lie about who you are now. Um, and I bet, I bet, even if you got really good grades and you flew through school like a champ, I bet you know what I'm talking about when we talk about shame. Those messages that uh, just sort of slip out in a whisper sometimes. You know, you know. The crucifixion Jesus endured, it was meant to be humiliating. It was meant to be shameful. It was public on purpose. It was humiliating on purpose. Those crucified were usually naked, and it was meant to be something that discouraged anyone from ever daring to rise up against the mighty Roman Empire. Um, but I think that uh, there was something more humiliating that was on the table. I think when Jesus was crucified, he heard some of those whispers that you hear sometimes, and I hear sometimes. You know, Jesus knew that his mission here was to save the world. And I suspect the enemy was telling him a different story about who he really was in those moments. You know, of course I'm hypothesizing about this, but I bet you the enemy was saying stuff like, See? See, I told you. Where's your father now? I thought you were his beloved. Things like that. But Jesus rejected the shame, threw it down, stomped on it, went through the cross because of what he knew it was coming, what was coming. Okay, let's go back to Genesis. I'm going to uh, dig in a little bit here to Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> While you're turning to that, uh, uh, chapter 1, we have the creation days, right? Uh, you probably remember at the end of each of the creation days, there's a pronouncement that God made, and it was good at the end of each of those days. And then uh, on the sixth day, after he had created man, he said, and it was very good. God was pleased with what he'd made. However, there was still one thing in Genesis, in, in, in Eden, before they sinned, there was still one thing 
that was not good. God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Isn't that interesting? Before sin had even been introduced, there's still a not good there. And so Eve was created, and as it tells that story at the end of chapter, chapter 2 in Genesis, chapter 2, verse 25 says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. I don't mean to insult you by explaining what naked means. I think you, you, you got that already. But I think in this context, it's meant to indicate more than only just the physical nakedness. It's the idea of being totally revealed. You know, it's, it's being uh, um, known in every way. Not many of us allow that to ever happen. That we let people see us so much that we're totally known. Um, I always joke about church. I mean, not this church in particular, but church in general. Church is where everybody is fine. It's where you go, and how are you doing? Fine. I'm fine. Real fine. Yep. And you smile, and you, you, know, you talk about all the good stuff until you go home, and then, then you can talk about the other stuff. Um, but when we allow ourselves to be known, there's a vulnerability. And what scares us from being known is this shame that gets introduced, and it gets introduced here, back in the Genesis narrative. Um, so let's read Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 here. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. So it's pretty evident she understood what God had said, right? This isn't a confusion thing uh, like did God say it or not. Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. I can imagine a, oh, come on, type of, type of tone. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. You'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful, its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Hopefully you've formulated your answer. Trivia question, what's different about life in Eden versus life in heaven? In Eden, God, God made a home for them, and he came and visited them there. In heaven, 
will be home together. He will be our home. And so, uh, however you imagine Eden and all its delights, heaven is going to be on a whole nother level. Satan, represented here as the serpent, understood the only not good in Eden was Adam's aloneness. And so, of course, what does the enemy do? With that knowledge, he does the same thing he does today. He tries to isolate Adam and Eve. Imagine it like this. Uh, he, tries to, he tells them the lie that God can't be trusted. I picture it uh, going like this. If you could just use your imagination a little bit. The serpent says, you know what's really going on here? I think God's holding out on you. You think he's making these rules for your benefit? Please. I mean, really? Every tree but the good one? I mean, look how good it really is. It's the best one here. Why would God keep the most beautiful, delicious tree from you? You know that's the one where all the wisdom is. You see, I think God knows if you eat that, it'll give you a special knowledge, just like him. If you ask me, I think God's just protecting his own position. It's hard saying why God would keep something so good from you. But this thing, this thing about not eating the good fruit, that's just nonsense. And so you can imagine how Eve and Adam fell into that trap. Let's take that same monologue, that same hypothetical monologue from the enemy. And uh, you know, for me, it's a good story, but it's hard for me to identify because fruit eating isn't a much of a temptation in my life, right? It's not something like, oh, eat the fruit, I better not do that. Um, so let's insert a modern set of temptations that a lot of us can identify with. You know what's really going on here? God's holding out on you. You know, I think God made those rules about your sexuality uh, I don't think it was for your benefit, really. Please, I mean, you're just supposed to abstain from one of life's best pleasures because someone as old as time says so? He just doesn't understand you and your unique needs. I mean, everybody knows everywhere you look. Check out the whole culture. Sex is everywhere. Sex is great. Why wait till marriage? What's so wrong with pornography? You should have what, you're, what you want. It's your identity. Decide what it is all by yourself. God knows, I think, the secret is that God knows if you start down this road, pretty soon you'll be independent and you won't be listening to him at all. He's just protecting his own position. Why would God keep something like that from you? This thing about not eating the fruit, I mean, I mean, about your sexuality, well, that's just nonsense. And you can see Satan's whispers all through the Adam and Eve story, just like if you step back from it a little bit, in your own temptation scenarios, you can see those whispers when you look back. Or hear, hear those whispers, I guess. Like Adam and Eve, when I start to doubt that God can really be trusted at his word, 
that what God says is good and right for me, no matter how I feel, when I start to doubt that, then I become isolated and distanced enough that I'm just set up for a dive off the sin cliff into the big sin ocean. Let's go back to verses 7 and 8. It says, at that moment, this is after they took the fruit and ate it. At that moment, their eyes were opened. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. There it is again, shame. The lie that gets us to doubt God leads us to sin. The lie about us leads us to just adopt Satan's identity for us, and it keeps us hidden and isolated. The continuing lie is that we need to hide. Let's sew together some fig leaves. And that seems to kind of work until the breeze starts blowing. Like, why is that phrase even in there? Until the cool evening breezes were blowing. And then all of a sudden, you know, standing out on the outskirts of the forest isn't quite good enough because it's like, whoo. And so they got to run back into the forest and maybe God won't see them in this naked condition. And I think that describes real well what we're led to do. Cover it. Hide it. Don't tell it. What if someone knew? I used to be in a place uh, before I understood better about the grace of God for me. I was in a place where I understood my walk with God to be uh, kind of characterized by do more, try harder. And I was pretty sincere at that, trying to follow God as wholeheartedly as I could. Um, But it was never enough, the more, more, more. No matter how good I, I was or how much I did, it was a struggle for me because, because whenever somebody would, would give me an affirmation or a compliment, wow, we really appreciate you, you know, or you're a good example, or, you know, some of those nice things that people say, I couldn't receive it as an encouragement because what went through my mind was, well, they don't even know. You know? They just don't know. If they knew and then fill in the blank with whatever it happened to be at that time, Well, they wouldn't even say that. Um, It's the isolation that Satan tries to achieve. He uses sin and shame to teach us to hide just like Adam and Eve did. And we just continue to bite on that and chew on that lie, that false identity that he says. So it's time we get to the good news part of this. Um, on our own, there's no way to cope with our sin and brokenness. It's just something that's forever going to be unfixable. But we weren't meant to be alone. From this moment forward, and really from before that, 
God knew, and he was looking ahead to what was going to happen when he redeemed all of creation. But that story got rolling here in the garden, and when Jesus came and suffered and died for us and rose from the dead, sin was defeated. And the shame is part of what he defeated too. So I don't have to be defined that way anymore. Because of what Jesus did for me, here's the good news. Because I've trusted in him and, and surrendered to him, then even on my worst day, I am brent in Christ Jesus with this robe of righteousness around me. Not until I do something wrong or, or you know, mostly cleaned up, mostly made right with God uh, until I do a little more. No, even on my worst day, what he's done takes care of my sin problem. I can't do it even on my best day. And so there's a unique kind of affirmation in that, not the affirmation that ebbs and flows. It's a confidence in what God says about me that I can walk in no matter what. It's a freedom that isn't known any other way. Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross. He, he scorned. He disregarded. He stomped all over the shame that the enemy was putting on him. And at the same time, he defeated what the enemy will try to say to you as well and to me. This summer, we had uh, a marriage conference in Egypt. We sent three couples, three uh, real mature couples to Egypt, and there were 30 Egyptian couples, uh, kind of a mixture of those who knew Christ and those who didn't. And uh, they shared about, uh, about these things in particular. The Egyptian concept of marriage, whether you're in the uh, circle of believers or not, is a pretty cultural understanding of marriage. So uh, one of the men said, you know, we've adopted a Muslim approach to marriage. You know, we're not Muslims. You know, a lot of them had been believers. Even the unbelievers in that midst weren't from Muslim contexts. Um, but they said that, that you know, we're, we're practicing Christians who do marriage in a real Muslim way. And so our, our couples there said, men, God doesn't want you to be isolated from your wife. You isolate yourself by standing over her, by making her acknowledge you as supreme leader. You're not meant to be isolated from her. It's your oppression of her that separates you. And the second thing, when you isolate, whether it's in a marriage or in any other context, it's self-harming. It's self-harming. You want to do good for yourself? Allow yourself to be known by her. 
Allow her to see the real you instead of putting on layers and layers uh, every time you get hurt. Well, one of the men in that context, so they had a time where it was men and women separated, and, and uh, uh, one of the men in that men's group said, man, if our wives, if my wife ever finds out about all this stuff you're telling in here, it's never going to be able to stay the same. <laughs> he just, he was real worried that she was going to find out all that he was supposed to do now and all the humility that was going to be required. He was one of the guys that at the end put his faith in Christ and is walking in his marriage in a whole new way but with a whole new power to live that way too. I shared in Sunday school, actually give me a second before I come back to uh, Monica Gabella. Uh, I think there's a couple conclusions that I want to give you at the end of these, these passages. First one has to do with your little drawing. If you go back to that, where are you in relation to God and your sin ocean? If Satan would tell you that the stink of that water is on you and you can never wash it off, and that that smell is what everybody notices when you walk in the room, that's what he would say, is you're marked by that. And no matter how hard you scrub, sorry, that's who you are. And I think what the Lord would say to you uh, when it comes to those little pictures and who you are in relation to him, I think the Lord would say, you know what? I'm standing right here with you. You dive in that ocean or you've just come out of it or whatever, you know, I am right here. Even if you go back in there, we'll walk into it together, and I know how to pull you out. I'm with you. You're mine. I love you. And there's nothing you can do to make me love you less, and there's nothing you can do to make me love you more. All I smell is roses. So don't work, worry. Don't worry about keeping your distance from me. In fact, I'm never going to leave. The second conclusion I was, I was going to tell you about Monica Gabella. I mentioned her in Sunday school, uh, a tiny little Polish gal who came to Christ and uh, uh, several years later, after being really well discipled and turning into a delightfully mature young woman, um, she said, I've been given so much. Why would God give me so much? And that represented her answer to the question of, how did God bring you here to Egypt? Her answer was, how can I do less in light of what God gave me? And he put it on her heart to go to Egypt, and so she went, because God had given her so much. And I think missions, so I told you this was going to be kind of a missions sermon after all. Missions needs to be born out of this good news. 
Because if it's born out of some sense of obligation, you know, I really am supposed to talk to people about Jesus. The pastor told me a hundred times, and, you know, that's kind of what we do, and we're supposed to do anyway. But hopefully people won't find out that I don't really do it, I never really have, but I should. It's just not going to work for being a missional person. But I'm telling you, once you start to embrace what God says about who you are and what he's done for you, it's hard to keep your mouth shut. It's like too good. It's too good to sit in the recliner and just process. It's the kind of good that you got to tell somebody about. And I think that's the heart of God's sending, is I've given you this treasure Let's go pass it around. Let's go let everybody enjoy it and enjoy all the promises that come with it. And so, and so with that, uh, I also talked in Sunday school about uh, the things we do as a mission agency. And let me just say, I'd love to have you come. I'd love to have you come. We take groups over for a couple weeks at a time and and uh, if you can speak English and you love Jesus, we can help you do that. We can help you go and share about Jesus in a way, even if you've never done that before. Um, in fact, if you've never done that, then you're probably the kind of person that would do great. Because uh, when you've never had that kind of experience, those people, when we take them on these trips, uh, they pray a lot. <laughs> and, so, and so those are the people we want. Because they, they know that, uh, man, the Lord's going to have to do this. So, so come on. If God's putting it on your heart, we'd love to have you. Love to have you. Let me pray here. God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done here, uh, yeah, for the trust in you, the faith that's represented here in this room. We thank you for the miracle of that, for the miracle of saving us and remaking us into a whole new creation and making us yours and giving us these promises and how we aren't even what we used to be anymore. And God, I pray that you give us courage. I know Satan would even use our lack of faith to beat us down. And I just pray, Lord, that you'd yeah, just give us the strength to say no to those lies and to believe you about the mission you'd have for us, about the call that you would give us, about who you say that we are, and help us walk in that freedom into your call for our lives. Lord, we trust you this morning. Please help our lack of trust. We love you, Lord, and we know that we have so much to be thankful for. In Jesus' name, amen.